You carry nearly 80 gigs of data in my head. You're in the mainframe. It's eating through Greg's entire system. Access encoded. Gigabyte of RAM should do the trick. We're in. We're in. We're in. We're in. We're in. Hello, and welcome to We're In, a podcast that gets inside the brightest minds in cybersecurity. I'm Bella Deshantz-Cook. And I'm Jeremiah Rowe. Today, we're going to hear from Trey Herr and Emma Schroeder from the Atlantic Council, a Washington, D.C. think tank that focuses on finding solutions to some of our biggest economic, political, and security issues. Trey and Emma both focus on cybersecurity issues in their role at the Atlantic Council's Cyber Statecraft Initiative. They work under the Scowcraft Center for Strategy and Security. We're going to be speaking with them more about their work and also about the situation currently happening in the Ukraine. We'll look more at the role that some hackers are playing in the conflict and how the war could have global implications for cybersecurity. We'll get into the conversation after a quick word from our sponsor. We're In is brought to you by Synac, the premier crowdsourced platform for on-demand security expertise. Synac delivers 24-7 pen testing, intelligence, and vulnerability management from a global network of vetted and trusted researchers. Their work is enhanced by smart technologies to accelerate your critical cybersecurity missions. Synac gives businesses the best chance of finding every vulnerability that matters. Find out more at synac.com. That's S-Y-N-A-C-K.com. So welcome to the show, Trey and Emma. Uh, we're, we're really excited to get to speak with you today. And we've got a lot that we'd like to talk about uh, with what's happening in Ukraine and Russia. Uh, but first, we wanted to get started uh, with a brief explanation for our listeners of what Cyber Statecraft Initiative is all about. Sure. So the Cyber Statecraft Initiative is the Atlantic Council's cyber policy program. And the Atlantic Council's a national security foreign policy think tank. It's been around in D.C. since 1961. So what we try to do is take operational expertise, folks that have hands on keyboards, who've had actual military experience, technical experience, engineering experience, and bring them into conversations about strategy and the conduct of statecraft that involves technology. So thinking less about how states should be doing things in isolation and more how politics manifests in the real world where technology is messy and people want to do all sorts of malicious things. Does that touch on the Cyber Moonshot Initiative? I know you've worked on that previously, Emma, as well. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that too. Yeah, definitely. Um, so this the Cyber Moonshot Initiative was a kind of new idea that the team came up with um, a, last year, about a year ago. Um, and I think that it's kind of a, a unique format for us, but it does kind of speak to our core mission of trying to connect different communities to talk about these ideas. Um, a lot of these concepts can seem really intimidating and daunting for people to get into. So, you know, one purpose of this uh, project was to try to make cyber a little bit more approachable, a little bit more fun, bring more people into that conversation. Yeah. So, you know, to do that, we are writing a couple of short stories. You know, it's set in the future. It's on the moon. There are cats with, you know, a couple special abilities. Um, and it's just meant to be, you know, a fun time, but while you're reading it, you're also getting, you know, some, some lessons and, and condensed ideas, um, that we explore further in our reports. Major credit to Emma on this, I think too, because this is one of the things that think tanks tend not to focus on as much. We do a lot of work on the story and not anywhere near as much on the storytelling. And so we still fall into a lot of these tropes of like academics writing yeah. long papers, hoping for the best. Um, and one of the first things that Emma had wanted to do when she came into the council was 
find a way to do something different and to work short form prose storytelling and this very what has devolved into this incredible science fiction you know meets the checkers guide to the galaxy kind of universe where there's whimsy but there's whimsy that's supporting really important concepts and so i think it's something that we're we're keen to try to build out in part just because there's so many people that need to understand stuff in the space that that don't have time don't have wherewithal and really shouldn't be subjected to an 80 page written report a pdf so it's sort of on us to figure out not just what to say but but really hopefully more engagingly how to say it so it sounds like this that particular initiative is is geared towards bringing sort of like I don't want to say like regular people, but maybe not not like people that are deep, deep in the industry, professionals, uh, bringing them up to speed and giving them education. Um, what other types of like, I guess I'm, I'm curious, like who else do you interface with? Who else are you, um, you know, kind of bringing into the conversation? So a lot of it, and I think I'm a reference. This is we're trying to bridge the community between folks who work on technology, who build it, who design it, who commit code. Um, with folks that regulate it, that talk about the political implications of it. And so, you know, for a long time, that's been sort of the divide between Congress and technology developers. In the world that we look at today, it's between law enforcement and folks that are sort of in civil society doing open source research on cybercrime. It's between the military community and the technical community that would like to be in the military, but maybe, you know, has has some strong fixation on certain substances or isn't really keen on doing a bunch of pushups. Um, and so for... For the way that we work, it's really trying to blend the user base and the developer base that we see with the policy community. And, and they look different and they say different things and they mean different things when they say the same words. And so a lot of this is trying to find mechanisms to translate, but also to present and allow people to live in that context and that culture so that it's a little bit less of an us other thing. And it's a lot more about a, a common group trying to figure some things out. People, I think, are more likely to to engage with something it's easier to connect with things when it's it's you know given to them in a format that they can understand um and a lot of the time you know we have a lot of there's a lot of kind of dense reporting out there which is obviously really great um and then there's a lot of you know you're on social media and you're like oh i want to know what happened today and you go and you're like you know wall of things just like hitting you um and it can be really hard to kind of you know walk through that and figure out, you know, what can I trust? What happened? How can I understand it on like a, on a human level? Um, as well as just like, you know, verifying what I'm seeing. Um, and I think that we do try to pull some of that, you know, narrative thread into a lot of our work, even if it's, you know, largely not fiction, (laughs) um, having something to say and making sure that message is, is carried through very strongly, um, is something that just can really help connect a lot of different communities. Um, and I think especially when we're seeing you know, tragedies unfolding, having having ways to tell that story in a more human and approachable way is always going to be a good thing. From a communications perspective, are you all seeing any kind of um, shift in the way things are communicated sort of in, um, in Washington when it comes to cybersecurity and what's currently happening over in Ukraine? It's an interesting question. I mean, we've seen a tremendous presence by the Ukrainians, I think the government, but also folks in the civil society space just to, to win the information war, the meme war alone. Yeah. That has been remarkable. Um, and I think that has normalized in some ways some of these kinds of communication and these media as standard official messaging channels. Um, 
you know, that maybe that's going to resonate over a longer term. I think you are seeing some people, some folks in DC exposed to that sort of uh, imagery in a way that they haven't been before. But I, I don't know that I've seen it really shift the conversation yet. What's your take on the legislation that Congress just passed requiring critical infrastructure operators to report when they get hacked? I would say, and I'm curious what I missed out of, but I, I think three things. One is it's overdue to have some kind of incident reporting requirement. Um, and it's not necessarily that it has to go to government, but I think CISA is a good player for this. They've matured substantially in the role that they're playing in the space in the last 18 to 24 months. And it's not a bad home. Um, but more importantly, I think number two is the paucity of data that we have about these kinds of incidents is tremendous. You know, the bias that, that as analysts that we're still working through, which is to say, we know a lot about certain high consequence failures and that's what we think the domain looks like. We really don't know about good success stories. We don't often hear about the, the dogs that do bark, but really not very loudly. Uh, I think that the, the way this data gets used in some ways is much more important than the requirement that that data be out there alone. Uh, but the third is, I just was so disappointed to see the breakdown in the interagency with FBI coming out at the last minute trying to make this public, you know, just last ditch desperate burn the grass down in the prairie stand to get this back in their domain. I, I think that was something that really reflected poorly on the leadership over there. And it's it's a shame given how much of a role they play and how important of a stakeholder DOJ is, but especially FBI is in this space. You hope it's an aberration. What do you think should have happened? I think they aired their concerns to Congress and through the interagency extensively. And I think at some point the White House is going to is going to indicate what they believe is the consensus opinion. Congress is going to make its call and that thus endeth the ballgame. I think I think that's a hugely contentious topic, right? Especially for commercial entities that have nothing to do with government affairs. Um one of the arguments is this is intellectual property. I don't want to freely give intellectual property or insight into my business. And and though for the greater good, if you will, it can be super beneficial. There is a kind of perspective difference that I think is, is difficult to get around in this space, which is the, you know, individual security versus collective security or, you know, individual benefit versus collective benefit. Um, and, you know, these, these companies, you know, maybe in the short term, there are risks in, in sharing this data, or they may perceive that there are risks. Um, but as to Trey's point, you know, the more that we know about how these incidents unfold and the types of actors that are out there and what responses actually look like day to day, the better prepared that we can help, um, you know, each other be. And you know, ensuring that through this process, it's not just a, you know, top-down government requiring information one-way street. Um, and I think, you know, this is already the way that things are trending, I think. But, you know, ensuring that if companies are giving the government information, then they are getting some sort of benefit out of that. Okay, how do we make sure this mechanism works if they're getting information back from the government, they get that information back in a way that's actually understandable and usable for them. Um, and making sure that we're kind of, we're pulling in the same direction, but not, you know, the government just yanking everybody in the same direction. If we can, you know, do everything we can to make sure that companies themselves are incentivized to work in this way that's, you know, pulling generally in the same direction. It doesn't have to be, you know, in March step, but aligning incentives to try to produce some 
uh, more collective security framework um, and mindset in more of the population, I think would be helpful in these kinds of conversations about you know, reporting. In terms of public-private cooperation, I, mean, I agree that you would like to see a two-way street and value being passed in both directions. Um, but it's a little bit, I guess, from my standpoint, it, it reminds me of the VEP conversation where the, the principal argument about the vulnerability equities process, which is the interagency process that exists for the intelligence community and for law enforcement to decide what software flaws they discover that should be turned over to industry and fixed rather than utilized for law enforcement or intelligence activities. The thesis I, that I, I bought into, and I think a lot of people have bought into over time is, doesn't matter if private sector uses that information incredibly well, pretty well, mostly well. It's a principal question about how the government is going to secure its citizens, whether it's through making these companies' software products more secure or using that information or using those software flaws to exploit and gather information in service of trying to secure people. And so what you don't want to see is government saying, well, we don't want to give it to you because we don't think you're going to do good things with it. It's like, no, the question is who's taking the lead on security? How many people are you going to help? And if you give this thing to Google and it's going to solve you know, it's going to close the software flaw for hundreds of millions of users versus if you're going to use it to target one terrorist organization. That's yeah. that's a very difficult. And as soon as you use it, it's well. burned too, right? Because it is exactly. And that's and that's but I think that's your point about instant reporting. It's the same way. Even if government doesn't make great use of this information, this is information the public should have. And this is information that should be had in aggregate for scholars and for folks in the analytic community to be able to make use of. So I think that's maybe the, the third answer to the question on the instant reporting piece is. Yeah, there are some companies and there are some services that exist because this is not a very well-functioning market. And cybersecurity generally is not a good state of affairs. So I think we are going to see some regulatory changes that make it much harder for certain classes of companies to operate because they've grown up around this inefficient system. And that's just the nature of the beast. That will change. So speaking of, of um, malicious software and malware uh, being utilized in unique ways, is there anything that you are particularly tracking right now uh, from a... Uh, uh, cybersecurity perspective and vulnerabilities aspect that that is something of interest. Software supply chain security it is it is the it is the gift that keeps on giving to every attacker <laughs> around the world. And I would say the theme the theme we're looking at for this year is open source yeah <clears throat> and firmware. Um, we haven't seen a lot of public information about software supply chain attacks targeting the firmware of systems, mobile phones. We have seen a few cases of, but we're really keenly interested in some of the server side attacks especially major cloud vendors. Um, but the other is just open source. You know, this community has come together in the, in the aftermath of Log4j and really had some great conversations about what security governance needs to look like, what sort of funding models are out there. And it's just at the early stage. I think we're going to see the federal government involved in a more significant way as well. Um, but this is an area where that is that is ripe for opportunity, unfortunately, both for the defender, but also the attacker. What do you think of when you think supply chain? Is it is it solely software based? Is it is it hardware based? Is it um, third party vendors that might be connected through uh, off the shelf devices? Obviously, you mentioned firmware, so I'm just kind of kind of like to dig in on that a little bit. Um, yeah, I think uh, on our ongoing project called you know Broken Trust, we've kind of I think taken tried to take the idea of supply chains and like Trey said, kind of attack it a little bit at a time. Um, so we have mainly focused on, you know, software supply chains um, as of yet and breaking down some of some of the vulnerabilities, vulnerabilities that we have seen. Um, you know, one way that we've done that is collect our database of software supply chain disclosures and attacks um, over the past 
couple of decades. Um, but this is definitely a complicated issue. And I think, you know, even just within, you know, software supply chain, there are a lot of different types of actors, um, let alone a lot of different actors. Um, and these different actors are going to have different incentives. They're different sizes. Um, they're located in different places. Um, so trying to bring together that conversation is, you know, it's a complicated issue. And then, as, as Trey said, we're trying to focus in on not just proprietary software. So, you know, software owned um, and built by these companies that are selling it, but also open source, which is, you know, free and available for anybody to use, but it's also used in a lot of that proprietary software. Um, so, you know, complicated answer to complicated question. Uh, <laughs> we have a lot of moving parts in and throughout the supply chain, um, but you, know, you can take chunks um, for, for research on it, but those chunks are kind of always going to have some interconnectivity with everything else. So trying to build it one piece at a time and, and make those links link back up. So I want to focus our conversation more about the crisis happening in Ukraine right now, um, and specifically the you know cybersecurity issues and relevance there. Um, so specifically, I know we talked a little bit about you know malware and destructive cyber attacks that are happening right now. Um, I know that that's something that's been talked about in the context of you know Russia attacking Ukraine. Um, what do we know about what's happening in Ukraine? related to malware, destructive cyber attacks, things like that? Yeah. So, so far there have been a paucity of destructive cyber attacks. There was a wiper that was discovered prior to the Russians uh, jump off on the 24th that affected, it looked like about 50 targets, 50 different systems inside of Ukraine, as well as a handful in Lithuania and Latvia. Although later reporting, and I believe it was Kim Zetter had, had come back and said that the Lithuania and Latvian infections were actually just collateral damage from a single contractor who had clients in all three companies, all three countries, excuse me, who was based in Ukraine. Um, inside of Ukraine, though, we've seen precious little offensive Russian cybersecurity activity targeted at destruction. Uh, there's been some to degrade, especially telecommunications networks. Um, and it's not altogether surprising, in part because a lot of cyber's capability is in more covert operations, more sabotage-focused operations, and really to shape the environment. And so once you you pierce the, you know, the threshold of bombs are falling, artillery shells are falling, that, that really makes cyber a little bit less useful, and it takes some of its advantages off the table. Where we have seen, though, some really interesting cyber activity is outside of Ukraine. Um, and in particular, there was uh, an attack on a commercial satellite operator called Biosat that appears to have been intended to limit um, folks in Ukraine's access to broadband internet services. And there's the, there's some speculation that they're a commercial uh, provider, but they're government and military customers inside of Ukraine using the service. The effect of that degrade and disrupt attack on Viasat's infrastructure, however, was far, far wider than just Ukraine. And it led to service outages for folks across Europe, including, and I think for us really interestingly, a large commercial uh, wind turbine operator so across Germany, I think this, wow. the number was actually 5,000 different turbines uh, were for a period of time inaccessible and inoperable because their means of communicating back home to their operators was via this commercial satellite link and it was disrupted. Haven't seen a tremendous amount of coverage on that. There was a good write-up from Raphael Satter at Reuters uh, about a week ago. I haven't seen a tremendous amount of follow-up, but that's the kind of you know ancillary to the core campaign 
area where I think we're expecting to see cyber pop up first, or at least most frequently. But turn to Emma if she's got other other pieces from that space. I know she's been following it. Yeah, I um I think uh, I've seen a lot of the conversation around this idea of why haven't we seen more? Will we see more? What will it look like? Um, and I think kind of going through, you know, following along uh, a lot of what Trey said, there are the the use so far of cyber that we've seen is not surprising. Um, you know, there are multiple different reasons why we see that. Um, I think first and foremost is probably need. So the the kind of effects that that cyber can have, if you want those to be, you know, destructive effects kind of in line with the direct military offensive, it's probably more efficient to use the tanks that you're going to be rolling in. Um, and then, you know, along with that, you have just the factors of, you know, cyber, it's, its best utility is kind of that low and slow build up. It takes time if you're going to try to use, you know, more sophisticated cyber uh, operations. It takes time to build those up. It takes time to find vulnerabilities, to, you know, build the malware that you're going to use, um, you know, make sure that you deploy that in an appropriate way. You know, one caveat there is definitely the, how much are, are the Russians afraid of a potential, you know, again, very hypothetical, sophisticated cyber operation in Ukraine spreading into an actual, uh, you know, NATO member. The, the little that we've seen in terms of like very sophisticated cyber operations, maybe there has not been time. There's been a lot of talk about when Putin actually made the decision that this was going to happen, as opposed to just being a buildup. Um, there are a lot of, as we've talked about earlier, there are a lot of proxies involved in this operation. Um, the involvement of the proxies is really fascinating. But again, uh, most of these uh, individuals and the, the groups that have coalesced don't have a lot of sophisticated capability. So they are relying mainly on more like, you know, DDoSing websites and that type of operation um, that we have seen. And then, you know, finally, just looking at what are the best tools that you can use to forward this type of operation. Um, so that's not to say that we won't see more sophisticated cyber operations in the future. But, you know, at each step, we have to look at this and say, you know, what's the most important fight that needs fighting? Um, and I think what we've seen so far is the, the military invasion, you know, physical military invasion has not necessitated a sophisticated cyber, you know, support from the Russians. And what's been more important in the kind of information space is what we've talked about, you know, misinformation, disinformation, which does not necessitate hacking, but what it does need is, you know, really solid messaging, access to these places. So that's where we've seen a lot more activity in, in kind of the cyber information environment. I think the threat of escalation is always a concern with uh, any war, obviously, um, especially when it comes to cyber operations. Um, what are the risks in this particular conflict from an escalation perspective? I mean, you have a nuclear armed power as one of the invading states, and there's a, by all accounts, highly centralized decision-making structure with a great deal of, say, uh, information asymmetry between what's happening on the ground and, and what's being delivered back to the, the central node who's actually making decisions and pulling these triggers. Um, so that's concerning. And that has prospect for escalation written all over it. 
Um, aside from that, I think the conventional understanding is that were NATO to become involved as a party of the conflict, that, that poses risk of escalation with respect to Russians seeing that as a direct threat to the continued viability of their invasion. Um, now, they're not, they're not experiencing an easy time of it. I think, frankly, the Ukrainians have amazed every single analyst I've ever read um, just at how effectively they've been able to, to slow down the Russian advance, to reverse it in some cases, to impose significant consequences and costs. But part of the flip side of that is it appears to have forced the Russians to change tactics and maybe become more desperate. Um, <clears throat> so we're seeing widespread shelling and, and unguided aerial munitions bombardment of major urban areas, the likes of which we have seen before in Syria and in Chechnya, uh, just causing massive loss of life and just undirected collateral damage. And that feels like a, a choice, but it's also a sort of act of um, having fewer options, having, having fewer resources to achieve your goals on the Russian side. As that window continues to narrow, you know, is there going to be an effort for, um, is there going to be a choice, I guess, made to try and widen the options window by taking action against some of these other forms of support, the military that's flowing into Ukraine from folks on the border, all of whom are NATO states. And, and so I, I, I think that the NATO as a co-combatant, co-belligerent aspect is really concerning as an escalation. Yeah. The other though, frankly, is, and, and we've seen this, you know, I think less addressed in the last week or two, but these massive sanctions that are disconnecting Russia from global aviation networks, global energy networks, global financial networks, they dramatically reduce the cost for Russia to come back and just impose costs on those networks just to play the spoiler and disrupt them. The kind of behavior that we've seen from, from the North Koreans, where there are very few consequences to them to trying to literally rob international banks because right. they're not part of the SWIFT network. They've already been sanctioned up the wazoo. I think we may start to see that from the Russians as well, potentially as a way of imposing costs on these other states. And that is concerning when you have a state as large and as, from a cyber standpoint, as capable uh, as Russia in that sort of spoiler position. So even if that doesn't cause an escalation spiral up to state-on-state -state military activity with a NATO member or nuclear release, it, it absolutely causes costs for the West and for the U.S. in trying to respond to this crisis. What about an escalation from a cyber attack perspective from Russia to the U.S. and European entities? One thought, and then I kick the hammer, is just it's really helpful, I think, in this context, not to think about escalation in a domain-specific frame. Okay. Right. So we may see cyber and then that that turns into something kinetic and it goes back to cyber, ends up in information. It's just it's very likely that these exchanges are going to be thought of in broader terms of not to not to plug the concept, but statecraft and strategy sure. rather than cyber response with cyber kinetic response with kinetic. But let me, let me kick to Emma. She's been thinking about that. Yeah, um, I think that that question of, you know, specifically in the NATO context, what can trigger Article five uh, is something that there's been some answers to, but again, a lot of um, a lot of conversations still to be had. So the Secretary General has said that cyber could trigger Article 5. That's not a guarantee that it, it will. Um, and what I think- What is Article 5? I'm so sorry. Oh, yes. Uh, so Article 5 is the agreement that if you are a NATO member, then you know, attack on a, any NATO member is attack on all NATO members. So that is kind of the, the pledge that is made when a new member joins NATO. And so the, the, what, what constitutes that attack made on any NATO member? Is cyber included? Um, that is a very slippery question because in cyber, we have a lot of different definitions of what 
constitutes attack. Um, and the, the conflict that we see in cyber is, is ongoing. There isn't really a state of you know, peace and war in the cyber domain. We see just malicious activity back and forth all the time from, from espionage to you know, degradation, intervention, all, all along that range. So the you know, deciding question of you know, could cyber trigger um, Article 5 intervention by NATO members um, again, like Trey said, I don't think could be triggered by you know a cyber incident in kind of an independent state. It would have to be part of a, a larger campaign. Uh, the context would matter a lot more than what that specific incident was. Um, and I think too that that probably would have to rise to a level that it would seem it would be you know, not in the Russians' interest to try to affect that. Um, but yeah, that, that conversation of could this escalate, could this draw in, you know, more European countries, I think would be a conversation when it came, comes to cyber operations and not, you know, a trigger in that kind of sense. Sorry, I'm trying to, I'm kind of trying to wrap my brain around, like, uh, to, be, to be candid, a lot of this stuff like about NATO and these agreements and when or if or how NATO would get involved is something that I've had the privilege of not having to learn about until recently, you know, so it's all really new to me. And I'm trying to understand, like, what would that potential conversation look like? Or uh, like, what would it look like for, for NATO to even have a, have to have a conversation of like, okay, does this cyber attack, does this, um, you know, incident, cyber incident constitute something that, that would invoke article five? No, it's a really good question. I mean, so let me take a pass at, at trying to explain that. I think Emma as well, the, the way that NATO was originally constituted was intended to be a defensive alliance against a Soviet invasion of Europe. Uh, and so the notion was if the Soviets invaded part of NATO, all of NATO would come to the aid of that country. So an attack on one part of NATO was an attack on all of NATO. And it was a way to create a commitment device. Basically, hey, Soviet Union, we are visibly committing all of ourselves to come to anybody's aid if you cross the border, if you start to invade. So know that you got to deal with everybody, not just that one country. Um, so from a cyber perspective, that that model becomes, okay, what, what, what cyber things could be done that start to look like Soviet tanks rolling across the border of Germany and, and running towards Berlin? Um, and that's an issue that's been debated and discussed ad nauseum for the last decade and a half. Um, but the interpretation that NATO has laid down is that a cyber attack broadly construed could be the basis to invoke this if you attack one, you attack everybody model. And I think the could be is where a lot of the focus is right now. My two cents is most likely that could be would have to be a destructive attack, something where data and hardware was unrecoverable and it was data and hardware that was somehow critical to the target state, to the host state. So as an example, if uh, a cyber attack were to disable uh, Poland's uh, banking system, if ATMs were not just inaccessible, but they were actually fried, uh, if personal data, banking data was, was destroyed such that people couldn't recover their funds, a different scenario. These are the kinds of things that I think would start to lead into that discussion of, this is really an armed attack. This is something significant that we have to respond to. We've kind of talked a lot about this uh, more offensive um, 
perspective from from Russia and and attacking Ukraine uh, in terms of cyber cyber attacks, things like that. Um, but I've also heard a lot of news about hackers, um, many based in the U.S., but also around the entire world, uh, attacking targets in Russia as a way to kind of step in and help defend Ukraine in, in a way, I guess. Um, and there's also news about Ukraine recruit, recruiting an IT army to kind of help with this effort. But I wanted to dig in specifically about the legality and also the ethics of that kind of um, endeavor, I guess. It's definitely like very interesting, um, you know, thing that has unfolded. Um, the increasing involvement of non-state actors in this conflict from you know, a variety of different angles, from this kind of IT army to you know, government officials in Ukraine specifically calling on different companies around the world and asking them to, to take certain types of action. Um, I think that you know, in this space, we need to have more of a conversation on you know, what does it mean for, for kind of ourselves and our allies to engage in this kind of behavior. I think, you know, it's a, it's a more simple conversation when we say, oh, you know, Russia or China, they have patriotic hackers that, that attack us. Um, but it's, you know, not officially state-sponsored or maybe it is, we don't know, you know, what, what can we do about that? Um, so there is a conversation to be had along the line of, you know, kind of, again, back to the idea of collective defense getting people involved. Um, but we want to make sure that that, at least I think, it, you know, from the U.S. perspective, more on the defensive side of things. Um, I believe that Estonia has a, a cyber defense league. I might be getting the name wrong, um, but it is a, you know, core of volunteers. They're not, you know, officially members of the government, but volunteers that that come together to help pr protect Estonian networks. Um, but, you know, on the kind of other side of that, we had, I think, you know, last year we saw a lot of conversation about the idea of kind of cyber privateers um, and taking advantage of the you know, incredible cyber talent that we have in the United States and kind of weaponizing that against uh, adversaries. Um, you know, I think that kind of the I think there are a few things, you know, letter of cyber letter of mark. We, we give a couple of different groups permission to go after specific adversary groups. But that is that I think that line of thinking really exposes the the potential dangers of getting more people involved. Um, cyber is a domain where we see a lot of activity activity, but um, you know, we don't have a solid sense of like I said earlier, like what is what is a red line? What's going to happen? Um, and so giving kind of carte blanche to different entities to take on adversaries at their own will um, is, is playing a dangerous game. But, you know, in the Ukraine specific context, they are at war. Um, you know, the Ukrainians are going to use every resource at their disposal to try to beat back the Russians. Um, and, you know, it is understandable that they came up with this idea um, you know, got got the talent together. Um, I think that, you know, that conversation is going to be a little bit distinct from how the lessons that we carry for it um, to to the United States or or other other states. 
but yeah, in terms of, in terms of Ukraine, very understandable. Uh, we'll just have to be cognizant and watch how that unfolds. And you mentioned like this, the, you know, the dangers of getting a bunch of people involved in this kind of action. I want to talk about like, what are the dangers? What happens if a ton of people from the United States, from the whole world, you know, jump in on this and something goes wrong? Like, what would that be? In terms of dangers, two things come to mind. First is you've got a lot of folks traipsing over systems to try to find some kind of way in to do something. And the challenge is that's not very strategic. Uh, and so you don't have any of these groups plugged into the target selection, the intelligence collection processes that Western agencies have. Uh, and so one one risk I think we've seen people call out is the possibility that one of these incidents may, in having a relatively minimal effect on a Russian system or network, actually cause the Russian network owner or defender to take a look at what has gone wrong and in so doing discover another intelligence operation, a more sophisticated penetration potentially from the Ukrainian government or from others, and so unwittingly actually compromise uh, a useful source of intelligence for the West that may be getting funneled back to Ukraine. That's one risk. Um, another is, and, and we talked about, there's probably not a lot of prospect that these kinds of groups are going to be uh, conducting sustained destructive attacks, but we have seen two instances where Belarusian, Belarusian uh, activists have compromised the Belarusian national rail network both before and after the, the actual kickoff of the invasion. Um, and they were able to disable, if not actually destroy, some digital systems and switching equipment in the wrong circumstances, at the wrong moment of uh, a, a more exaggerated crisis. An attack like that could appear, at least initially, or be misattributed to be the U.S. or another major Western government. And that, from I think to the point that I made earlier, from a signaling perspective, looks much more intentional, much more strategic, and thus potentially much more escalatory than the random act of a large diffuse group of, of non-state participants and individuals. And so the chance that a group gets itself in the firing line or wedged into something looking like something they're not at the wrong moment uh, could be potentially costly as well. But the third thing I think that just jumps out from my side is you know, we've seen a lot of difficulty in folks to struggle in terms of prosecuting this war against the Russian government and military versus the people of Russia. And one of the challenges is that it is just low-hanging fruit to go after civilians. It's it's true around the world. We're unfortunately seeing that play out every day on the news with respect to the Ukrainian civilian population. But for these kinds of hacker groups to start doxing random Russians, to be compromising their critical infrastructure, to be targeting their bank accounts, their sources of information, that really not only sends the wrong message, but is strategically unhelpful when this war is against the Russian state, not the Russian population. And so that's, I think, another harm that I, at least that I worry about is you've got a lot of folks that want to do something. Even large companies are finding it difficult to have a strategic impact rather than just pull out of a market and sort of signal they're not going to keep doing business. It was a really unfortunate situation. I think it was a Canadian orchestra had had been touring with a Russian, young Russian piano prodigy, really incredibly talented, who was vocally anti-war. Uh, and they kicked him off the tour and they they, they yeah, released him that. from his contract with the orchestra just as a way to demonstrate their sort of you know feelings about the conflict. And that just harms an innocent. And, and in this case, harms an innocent who has active feelings in the direction that, that the orchestra wants yeah. to signal. And so that's a, that's another harm from this. What about ethics, right? We've got citizens from the United States that are volunteering to go over and fight this particular war from from 
both a physical perspective, but also from a cyber perspective, sort of jumping on bandwagons to like hacking parties, if you will, or joining the IT army. From an ethics standpoint, where do you even begin to approach that? Bringing in ethics into this is can be difficult as well um, in terms of where where do we draw this conversation of you know individual responsibility and individual ethics versus you know legality and and to what degree you know ethics informs legality, um, but you know having that conversation I think with what's going on will take a little bit longer. Um, and there, I think there's already been a lot of conversation on this topic, you know, the, um, the ethics of, of hacking in a lot of different senses. But one thing that I think, you know, kind of following along this line of, of how we want ethics to inform our, our laws and inform our, our kind of global strategy um, is looking at, you know, in the future, you know, past, past this, we have already had a lot of conversations about the involvement of different types of actors in the cyber domain. Um, and we have already seen some ramifications of, you know, private individuals, private actors, um, taking it upon themselves to, you know, attack entities within the United States. Um, so we have, you know, ranging from, you know, ransomware groups to companies that, that sell and provide kind of offensive cyber capability as, as a service. Um, and I think this has some, some, some line of thought with it of how can the United States continue to curb this growing kind of threat that we're seeing from non-state actors um, while also seeing kind of a rise of of individuals and groups that want to get want to be active in a way that they see you know in line with the, the ethics of the United States um, and complicating potentially you know if we are trying to create some some more global conversations around what, what are the norms of behavior in cyberspace? Ensuring that our behavior and the behavior that we support is in line with those norms that we're trying to uphold. Um, but again, you know, it's a very complicated conversation. We're bringing in ethics, even just you know within the United States, let alone you know across Absolutely. the globe. Um, yeah, another complicated answer. It's a good question, though, and I and I think maybe a way to close out on it is. You know, across a variety of philosophical traditions, there is often a discussion of the degree to which you owe an allegiance to your values, or you owe some commitment to your your sort of fellow man, to each other. And that notion of owing, I think that commitment is really interestingly embedded in a lot of the core ethos that we see of technology groups, of communities, of open source developers, some of the original phone freakers, yeah. even back to the, you know, the hackers of yore in the 60s and 70s, the research communities that were putting a lot of these basic digital technologies together, there was a there was a duty to each other in trying to build this these grand things. Um, and so I think, you know, what we see here in some ways is a continuation of that tradition. The same one that Hemingway was writing about in the 40s with whom the belt holds, right? The experience of Americans going to fight in the Spanish Civil War against the fascist government. There is a there's a tradition of folks 
standing up and trying to take arms in, in defense of their values. Sometimes those values align with the state they're a part of, other times not. So from that standpoint, I think this is this is continuing in a in a long and and debated but but pretty rich tradition. The caveat I'd only add in is, you know, where we start to see folks trying to act beyond their individual capability. It's one thing to feel an obligation or a duty to to another. It's another to try to take action even when you don't have an ability to affect that person or their situation. And so I think that's the the concern, at least that I have, is that you know, folks that want to contribute, donate money, learn CPR, try to go and assist a massive, you know, multi-million population of refugees that have flowed into Europe and the largest internal migration in, in the continent since the Second World War. There are numerous ways to help. Very few of them are directly on the battlefield and, and fewer of them, frankly, are on the cyber battlefield. And so I think finding some, some humility alongside that obligation to understand how you can actually best influence the situation rather than just trying to find the most iconic thing I think is also really important. A lot of folks feel confused about what we can what we can and what we should be doing to help right now. What is, you know, you mentioned like assessing kind of like figuring out the best way to be impactful and helpful. And it's not always, you know, some of the, I don't know, easier, obvious ways. How what do you, how do you, do you have any recommendations for, you know, for us, our listeners, folks in this industry, or just in general for figuring out the best ways, the most impactful ways to help? Um, I think probably the the first point is that I think it can get easy to be caught up in feeling like you have to do the most or, you know, feeling like you have to be keeping up with everything. Um, and I think that's something important to remember is that a little bit still does help. Um, you know, even if you're not able to, to actually, you know, get to Poland and get to a, a refugee camp, if you're able to send money to a reliable and trustworthy organization that can fund that kind of behavior, um, even if it's just, you know, whatever you can afford, that will still be helpful. Um, and, you know, just making sure on that, that when you're deciding to, to give money or give support or, you know, even retweeting something um, to raise awareness, just making sure that you're doing your due diligence um, to understand, you know, who is it that you're amplifying? Who is it that you're supporting? Um, you know, unfortunately, um, bad times sometimes do bring out the worst in people. Um, we see people trying to profit off of this, but bad times also can bring out the best in people. Um, so just making sure that, you know, you're a part of that, um, doing, doing what research you can, trying to find some, some trusted sources to help point you in the right direction. Um, you know, every little bit can help. I really echo what Emma said. There is, there is no lower space that cyber criminals will not stoop to take advantage of situations like this. Um, but I think one place that folks are feeling feeling strongly is Medicine Sans Frontieres. Medicine Sans Frontieres, uh, Doctors Without Borders, um, has an ongoing fundraising campaign to try to ship not just medical supplies, but some tactical kind of medical equipment uh, to folks in country. And there's a number of other um, charities like that that are trying to do work both to address the, the situation inside of Ukraine as well as some refugee populations. UNICEF is doing some really incredible work inside of Poland and Romania. And so, you know, those are those are ways to contribute uh, directly with funds. There are also some places that are sourcing volunteers both to travel over and, and try to support, uh, but also to offer, you know, if they've got more specialized skills from a distance. So definitely there's a myriad of good things out there to be doing that aren't necessarily picking up a keyboard and trying to deface 
uh, the Russian MOD website again. <laughs> uh, thank you all so much for your time. It's been a pleasure and it's been some really insightful conversations that we've had so far. So thank you. Does your penetration testing meet compliance requirements? Does it adhere to the most rigorous security standards on the market today? Now you can find Synac on the FedRAMP marketplace for all of your agency's security testing needs. Synac recently received moderate in-process status from FedRAMP, meaning that even more U.S. departments, agencies, and contractors can utilize Synac's global network of trusted and vetted security researchers for on-demand, around-the-clock pen testing. Learn more at Synac.com. That's S-Y-N-A-C-K.com. If you like today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe wherever you're listening to this. It'll really help us get noticed on your favorite podcast platforms. Also, you can share this episode with your friends and make sure to check out all of the other fascinating people that we've already interviewed. We're also open to your suggestions. If you know someone that we should be talking to, drop us a line at we'reinpodcast at synac.com. That's we'reinpodcast at synac.com.